Hi, everyone, and welcome to Focus Forward, an executive function podcast where we explore the challenges and celebrate the wins you'll experience as you change your life by working on improving your executive function skills. I'm your host, Hannah Choi. Today, I'm taking a look at how grief and emotional trauma impact our executive functioning. I really struggled to write the intro for this episode. I kept finding myself putting it off. And if you've listened to my procrastination episode, you'll know that the same thing happened with that one. So I did some reflection to figure out why, and I realized it's because of the same reason. I'm afraid I won't get it right. Grief and emotional trauma are really hard to talk about. And even though they're part of being human, we have all experienced or will experience some form of it in our lives. And everyone experiences it differently. Everyone's reaction to grief is different. Everyone's reaction to other people's grief is different. It's a big part of these beautiful and difficult lives we're living. And yet it is still so hard to talk about. I thought that maybe by learning more about it, we can find it a little easier to talk about. And maybe finding answers to why we react the ways we do when we experience loss can help us discover strategies that work to orient ourselves to this new normal. Things won't be the same after loss, so how can we navigate that? I reached out to Dr. Lisa Schulman, who is a neurologist and a professor of neurology at University of Maryland in Baltimore. Lisa is also a published author and wrote a book called Before and After Loss, a neurologist's perspective on loss, grief, and our brain. Her focus on the brain's reaction to grief and as you'll hear her explain, emotional trauma was exactly what I needed to answer the many questions I had. Lisa's personal experience with grief and her professional experience led her to research the topic. Her extensive knowledge of the brain helped me understand it all so much more, and her calming presence somehow made it easier to talk about. I hope you enjoy and learn from this conversation as much as I did, and that this episode helps you in your life before or after you experience loss. When you're done listening, please check out the show notes for more resources, including a link to Dr. Shulman's book, which I highly recommend reading, and a conversation I had with Jody Lavoie, a grief coach who supports widows who are returning to work after loss. Okay, let's dive in and learn about grief, emotional trauma, and the brain. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for joining me. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners for anyone who doesn't know who you are? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Hannah. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm uh, a uh, neurologist and author. Uh, I'm a a professor of neurology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Uh, And uh, I uh, got involved in um, the area of emotional trauma, traumatic loss, and grief through my own personal experiences, and it really has ended up being uh, something very important to me, uh, close to my heart, and uh, I'm really looking forward to discussing it with you today. Are you comfortable sharing your personal experience and telling your story about how you got to where you are today? Yeah, um, certainly. Uh, you know, I, um, I mean, I, I really, I think the place to start is that, you know, I, um, 
I'm a subspecialist in neurology. I'm what's known as a movement disorder specialist. And most of the patients that I see have Parkinson's disease or Parkinson's related disorders, uh, various forms of what we call neurodegenerative disorders. And I've been doing this for about 30 years now. Uh, and so, you know, I have followed many, many, many people through serious illness, you know, to um, points where they are uh, quite disabled and end of life. Uh, and, you know, and for those reasons, you know, I thought to myself when I um, confronted serious illness in my life, when my husband was diagnosed with cancer, uh, I thought that uh, I was more prepared than the average person uh, as a, somebody who counseled others going through hard times. Uh, I should say that my husband, Bill, is a neurologist too, and we work closely together. Uh, and uh, I think that in over the experience of his illness and his decline and ultimately his death, you know, I was um, taken aback or unprepared for uh, the fact that I you know, like so many things in life that you don't know, really know what it is until you're in somebody's shoes. And, uh, and the fact of the matter was that when he was uh, seemingly uh, suddenly gone, uh, I was ill prepared uh, and uh, was had a really tough time of it. And for a while, I floundered, uh, you know, uh, because I hadn't expected uh, to feel the way I felt, all of the repercussions. And uh, at some point, uh, many months, many months later, well, actually, I started spontaneously to write a, a journal and just to get my feelings on a piece of paper, although I'd never done anything like that before. And then many months later, I made the connection which wasn't as obvious as it seems to me now between my own experience and a personal experience I was having of loss and my professional world of understanding how the brain works and the brain responds. Uh, which really, you know, it's like one of these things where you think afterwards, you know, like, duh, <laughs> you know, because I in my I'm a researcher. I not only see patients, but I do research and I write uh, manuscripts. And a lot of the papers I've published are about uh, the behavioral responses, adjustment, quality of life, um, managing difficulty in one's life. Uh, and yet, it took me months to, you know, uh, link obvious uh, similarities between what I was going through and my professional life. Uh, and that ultimately led me to do quite a bit of research into brain function, about how the brain responds to emotional trauma and loss. And ultimately I began to find that as a path forward for me. Uh, and uh, then I wrote the book uh, based on that information. Yeah, I really, I really, really, really enjoyed your book. I, I, be, what you said um, just a little bit ago about 
feeling like you were prepared. Um, uh, I, my personal interest in learning about grief and, and emotional trauma and the impact on the brain comes from an experience that um, I had in my family and with some friends, I had a period of five years in a row um, where we had some pretty um, traumatic and unexpected losses. And, um, and I now looking back on it, I feel like when that happens again, because it is a part of life, um, I want to be more prepared. <laughs> and that is my, that's, that's kind of like the, um, motivator for me. And, but it's interesting what you said, like you don't, when it's yourself and, and it's you feeling it, it's, I imagine it is harder to, um, make that connection and realize like, Oh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like one of the, one of the things that I, um, often start off with when I'm giving a talk on this topic is how psychiatry and neurology are the same thing. And even though as a neurologist, I well understand the brain function that governs our, our behavior, our um, mental health, our personality. Um, but when, even, even though I understand that, I can't wrap my arms around it, to be honest. It's like something I have to sort of intellectualize uh, because you, the texture of our lives, our experiences are so rich and so compelling that to think that this is related to neurotransmitters and nerve, nerve cells, you know, it, it boggles the mind. Yeah, it really Even does. for a neurologist who studies it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I am I am far from that. And um, but the little that I do know about um, the brain, it both helps to understand. Okay, this is my brain, but then at the same time, like what? <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's just my brain. Yeah. Oh. Um. So. Um, when we when we first communicated, um, we and you mentioned it a little bit just uh, just a bit ago. I had asked to talk with you about grief and the connection um, between the brain and executive function skills, and you um, suggested that we also include emotional trauma. And I was just wondering if you could explain um, that. And just, are they different from each other? Are they the same? Does the brain react differently? Yeah, you know, I'm going to challenge you, even in the way you asked that question, you came from the um, conventional position that grief has this special position and emotional trauma is different and that I'm trying to push them together. But I would push back and say that um, that is a, um, a notion about grief having a um, unique uh, position uh, in the spectrum of emotional trauma, but that the more you understand about the way the brain behaves and what parts of the brain respond to uh, serious traumatic loss of all types, uh, the more you see that grief is just in the spectrum of emotional trauma. Right. And that, you know, we, uh, one of the most intriguing parts, and these things will be eternally intriguing to me, 
is that uh, how different we all are uh, in terms of the impact of different events in our lives. And, you know, you cannot uh, pinpoint or you can't predict what for one person will be emotionally traumatic and what will not. We certainly all know people who um, have had significant, say, um, losses of loved ones in their life, but they don't go through a terrible uh, period. Not everybody does. Uh, by the same token, uh, we see people who suffer other losses in their life. Uh, it may be a loss of a job. It could be a breakup with a, some relationship. It could be the loss of a pet. Uh, it could be a, um, you know, a uh, physical assault. You could go on and on. Certainly COVID, uh, the pandemic has been a source of trauma, emotional trauma and loss in our lives. So you can't pinpoint it. And so I would just say that for every individual, imagine a spectrum, a range where you have a unique uh, range of for you, what is most, uh, it would be the greatest, most severe causes of emotional trauma and that is, I think, the, um, for me, it's the most uh, appropriate and accurate way to think about it. Uh, you know, I think that the most important thing is to think, of, this is a very important point I'd like to leave uh, with your listeners, which is that uh, the brain is agnostic to the type of trauma. The isn't there isn't any unique area of the brain to respond to one of those forms of emotional trauma that I mentioned or another. It, mm. you know, it might be that you're planning on going to graduate school and you really like totally crash when you're taking a test you needed to ace. And that for you is you walk out in a state of utter shock, how yeah. it's going to affect your life. Uh, that, you know, for you is triggering the same responses as the person, in fact, who might find themselves sadly losing a loved one. It's just a matter of severity for each individual. So it's not the cause, it's not the triggering event or the type of event, it's the individual personal meaning of the event that ends up triggering the same cascade of responses. And, and that, that actual response within the brain, it's like not, ne not necessarily there, like how it looks, how it looks externally, but what's going on inside of their brain. Is that what you're right. saying? Right, right, exactly. So, you know, all the um, consequences, the symptoms, the consequences, the sequelae, all would be the same based on the severity of the loss. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I was, I lost my dog about four years ago and, and that hit me harder, way harder than I ever thought it would. And I found myself sometimes thinking, oh, like, oh it's horrible. Just like judging myself. Like you shouldn't, you know, she was just a dog, you know, it's, but now, but what you're saying now is making me feel a lot better. I mean, and I caught myself when I said that. I you know I said no, she wasn't the, because the experience for me of that loss was so great. So it must have been more than she was just a dog. So it's it's good to hear that that uh, that. 
You know, I mean, I, I thought a lot and, and done, you know, reading about um, why uh, certain things are so um, personally uh, and individually emotionally traumatic and that one cannot uh, predict that necessarily. Uh, you know, I, I believe that there, um, and, and is it, it, it relates to the topic of identity and the story that we have constructed for ourselves about our lives, about where we fit in the world, mm-hmm. uh, what makes sense to us, the infrastructure of how we get up every day, interact with people, do our jobs, are uh, potentially a partner, a parent, all the roles we take, we have a, um, a conception, a conceptual framework. And that is related to our identity. Uh, and when uh, some piece of that is um, lost or injured or at risk, uh, that is jumping to the idea of brain function here, perceived by the brain as an actual um, assault on or threat to our survival. And this is another very key concept here. And it's, it's a matter of, it may sound jarring, and I think the first time I saw that um, in the literature, I, I thought, wow, you know, could that possibly be? Uh, but you have to think of this from an evolutionary standpoint. And from an evolutionary standpoint, I mean, this is how our brain ended up being uh, wired based right. on evolution. Right. And our, and our brains are all incredibly similar to each other, actually. Uh, we think of ourselves as individuals, but we have the same hard wiring. Right. So uh, the fact is that uh, over evolution, we all know that we were being changed by what would allow, enable us to survive. And those who were poorly um, prepared and unable to, um, were too vulnerable, would not have survived would, evolutionarily. So we, the most hardwired, the most high priority from the perspective of your brain, not your mind, your brain, yes, yes. is keeping us alive, keeping us functional. Right. And that um, is what uh, ends up ruling the day in terms of of the brain to be triggered by some loss, if it's perceived as something that could be a threat to our function, to our survival, then you know, potentially even all hell could break loose as the brain kicks in with all sorts of reflexes to help us go through bad times. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, maybe uh, I, I come from a long line of the first people who domesticated dogs. <laughs> they were my... <laughs> <laughs> That's why I felt it so strongly. So, um, how how um, how does the brain react to emotional trauma? What what's going on in there? 
And um, and then I, I don't know if you can bring anything in about executive function since that's my particular interest. But I mean, executive functioning affects all areas of our lives, so it's kind of in just naturally part of that. I'm I'm sure. Yeah, well, I, I can certainly bring that in. Uh, so I think that when we think about how the brain reacts to emotional trauma, it's um, helpful to organize um, it from the standpoint of acute responses and chronic responses. And acute uh, responses are the immediate short-term responses to things in our lives, in our environment, to triggers. And the, there are chronic effects of these acute, an accumulation of acute responses over and over. You know, from the standpoint of the acute responses, it's easy because everybody understands, I think, the basic concept of fight or flight. And, you know, if we are in the crosshairs of a bear, a gun, uh, a car, uh, you know, the same response, again, you know, there isn't a different response for a bear or the car. It is the same response, which is a survival response of fight or flight. And it is a massive brain and systemic response that immediately jolts our mind to be vigilant and alert, as alert as we possibly can be, blocks out anything extraneous, gets our heart, our lungs, our muscles prepared to run, to fight, to breathe hard, and so forth. We are totally focused on you know, somehow surviving. Uh, so that is the acute response. And the fact is that after, uh, if we wanna talk about grief itself, after the loss of a loved one, our world is filled with daily triggers mm. that each time we are exposed to these things, sometimes it's somewhat anticipated, but sometimes it is absolutely not. We find ourselves going through that over and over and over. Now, the chronic effects of it are very interesting because it's related to something called neuroplasticity, which is not as complicated as it may sound because um, neuroplasticity is simply that the brain is continually rewiring itself based on our experiences. You know, right at this moment, we've met each other, we're chatting together, we're gonna to remember this, and our brain is establishing new great connections for us <laughs> to go back to in the future, and that's neuroplasticity. Uh, so, um, but the neuroplastic changes that occur based on what I just talked about, the continual repetitive triggering of the alarm of trouble for the fight or flight mechanism, uh, results in the part of the brain that colloquially is called the fear center, but from a neurologic standpoint is called the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system, so the fear center is constantly being strengthened while the cortical functions, which are like all of our thinking, our memory, our executive functions, our judgment, all that is being weakened. And, and it's very important because actually uh, there are scientific, many, many studies, this is not speculation, 
It shows that the brain pathways that connect the fear center to the our intellect uh, are being weakened because the fear center is being strengthened. The effects of the judgment are being weakened. We can also see that the volume of the different parts of the brain are being altered and that the fear center is being gets larger, mm -hmm. literally, mm -hmm. while the <laughs> The parts of the brain we need to calm ourselves that down and yeah. some, compose ourselves are being getting smaller. Mm -hmm. And this also affects on the brain activity between the two, which is very unhealthy. Everything we uh, do in life is some interaction between the emotional seat of the brain, which is very primitive. Right. You know, and uh, the cerebral cortex, which is our advanced brain. So, you know, like, I don't know about you, but I'm not too crazy about roaches or spiders. You know, I'm like, I, I can, if I see a bad spider or roach, I could get triggered or get okay. it. I don't want, uh, you know, eek. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, but then like, you know, your seed of wisdom like kicks in and goes, you know, I'm living alone now. And I don't have anybody to go get rid <laughs> get of this. For you. <laughs> and, uh, and then I just say, you know, like, calm down. You're just going to have to deal with this because <laughs> I'm not going to get into bed with a spider in my room, you know, or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, you can see that interplay between the fear center and the uh, intellect. Yeah, it has to be a healthy balance. Right. And unfortunately, based on the set of circumstances I've described, an imbalance occurs. Yeah. And you end up being, you know, like this raw primitive brain that's uh, autonomously setting off the alarm. And, and then, you know, and, and then what do we see amongst the people who are going through emotional trauma and who are having difficulties? You know, we hear them describe uh, feelings of anxiety, difficulty with um, their sleep, uh, flashbacks. Mm -hmm. uh, and from your perspective, the issues of executive function are being weakened because they're the, the, the fear center, the primitive responses of fear are predominating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was, I was, I remember uh, in part of your book, you said that uh, one of the um, strongest predictors for, um, I, I'm not sure how to describe it, but for feeling, for lack of better words, feeling like, okay, um, after emotional trauma is the idea of self-efficacy. And, and I imagine that feeling that cognitive self-efficacy comes a lot from being able to access your executive function and being able to use that that part of your brain yeah i think i'm really glad you brought that up because uh, a lot of my uh, a lot of my research and work has focused on self-efficacy for managing uh, chronic illness mm. and you know in my own crazy journey, figuring out things. At some point, it was another kind of like epiphany where I went, well, well that's another 
why didn't I ever think about that? You know, this, that grief or emotional trauma can be seen as a chronic condition. Yeah. A chronic condition, just like the chronic con- medical conditions I had, you know, been studying for a long time. And so from that standpoint, you're right. What, we, what we're seeking is to develop self-efficacy to manage this condition, emotional trauma, traumatic loss, or grief. And self-efficacy, that phrase may not be common, uh, commonly known to some people. It, it simply means that uh, you have a level of confidence or belief in yourself that you can manage your situation. And importantly, I think of it as that you are developing uh, a, a sense of control over your life. We all, you know, we all seek in our daily life a sense of control. When you don't, when you're not feeling a sense of control, it's very distressing. Yeah. Very distressing. So, so many of the clients, pretty much all of the clients I've ever worked with, and all of my colleagues too, um, it comes up that that after after figuring out what strategies and tools work best for them to support the areas of executive function that challenge them. Once they figure that out and they're able to have some control over that area, they all say they feel more confident. And, and, and that is that self-efficacy right there. Right. You know, the, um, the kind of the, uh, the pathway is um, that one needs to develop um, basic fund of knowledge about your situation and then develop um, skills of self-management, which it sounds like you're counseling people about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then by practicing those um, new skills that every time you do it, that you start to have increasing confidence and increasing sense of control. So you sort of build on it until you reverse the cycle of feeling uh, helpless. Mm-hmm. So if you have an imbalance in the fear center, like the limbic system is kind of taking over and, and, and inhibiting the, the part of the brain that we're using for our executive functions, what are some things that people can do to write that balance? And, and I'm sure it, like right after this, the, whatever traumatic incident happens, it's really difficult to get out of that. What are some things that people can, can try? You know, I think that that was uh, one of the most um, encouraging uh, parts of uh, what I learned over time, because I realized that uh, it certainly is calming and reassuring to understand the way in which the brain is responding and how it explains your experience. That in and of itself is comforting to know that you know, you're not, as many people say, going crazy, that you're not having this, um, you know, uh, breakdown, so to speak, but that this is a a common, we're all in it together. We are all going through it together. And I think that's very reassuring. But the epiphany was when I realized that it leads to obvious interventions that I thought this is, this is exciting. Uh, you know, it, it actually, I want to start, go back for a moment to what I referred to before about neuroplasticity. So what I was describing before is a uh, spiraling down into bad neuroplasticity. 
the, the brain is being rewired in this unhealthy yeah. well, way. And the important part of understanding neuroplastic changes is that we can thoughtfully and deliberately rewire and create connections, brain connections, neural connections, but those that are healthier to move the needle in reverse, good neuroplasticity. You know, um, neurologists have a cool uh, phrase that we use that um, when things fire together, they wire together. I've heard that, yeah, great. And that is actually a great description of neuroplasticity. That, um, you know, it's nothing more complicated than practice makes perfect. You know, if you uh, if you sit down to learn a musical instrument, you can, can't do a thing. If you get on a bicycle for the first time, forget it, you know, but you know, you keep on doing it and, you know, Eureka, suddenly you have a new skill and oftentimes you never lose it. Yeah. Uh, so what is that? It's things that fire together, wire together. And so we can use that understanding and knowledge to think about how what steps we can take to reverse the process which is causing everything i said before the fear center to be this crazy alarm in our head that is domineering our life over time for some of us uh so uh what what can we do well you know actually in in my book i just want to um mention that you know i actually wrote my book with people for people who are going through very difficult times. And uh, I will never forget how um, disorganized my thoughts were uh, during that period of time. Uh, so I uh, wrote in the book uh, what I call three steps, which were to organize a strategy because I felt that I needed, I, I personally needed things, you know, spoon fed and, and so right. forth at the time. And so I thought, I don't want people to feel overwhelmed by what I'm saying here and that they have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So the three steps that I uh, describe in the book was the first one, which, and I'll describe the three in a moment. The first one I called subconscious conscious integration. And the second one is immersion and distraction. The third one is gradually opening the mind to new possibilities. So I'll briefly describe each. Subconscious conscious integration is one way to describe that, what I described before, that there's been a disconnect between the emotional parts of the brain and the cognitive parts of the brain. And from that standpoint, a lot of the disturbing emotions and memories from a time of trauma end up being suppressed mm -hmm. in our subconscious. Mm -hmm. They're not accessible to us. Part of the reason they're not, the main reason they're not accessible to us is because it sets an alarm off every time we even go in that direction. Right. right. So, but it's a big part. It is key to healing, to reconnect with that because when you have a lot of disturbing stuff in your subconscious 
this results in flashbacks, nightmares, mm-hmm. more panic attacks, all that. So that's what that first step is. We'll talk, come back to talk about how to accomplish it in a moment. Two is immersion and distraction. And what that refers to is that, you know, one can't do, go through the angst of what some people might call grief work constantly. Yeah. You know, you have to be uh, very aware that you need to give uh, your mind and yourself and your brain space to chill out and have some enjoyable times. So that's what immersion and distraction means. Sometimes you're going to have to do the hard work of immersing, immersing, immersing yourself in these difficult memories, which for me was when I was doing the journaling, but that I would plan in my day also other times where I was going to distract myself from it. And the third ends up being after you've gone through those two steps I just mentioned, the third step is that a time will come when there's enough healing where you can begin to open yourself up to new possibilities because, you know, life will not return to what it was before uh, after many serious losses. And so, you know, we do have to uh, find a way to make a pivot and start to think of, well, how are we going to build this new life, which, you know, takes some time. So if someone has a sudden traumatic loss and they haven't read your book and they have, and they, and they, you know, don't, um, you know, know these steps or they don't know even where to start, where is a good place to start for people? You know, in the book, uh, I do have a chapter or more where I talk about the nuts and bolts of what you can do. Uh, And I think, you know, it's uh, really important to know that there isn't one shoe that fits everybody here. Uh, We are all very different and we are looking for some vehicle that allows us to relax enough to get back in touch with disturbing thoughts and uh, emotions, disturbing emotions and memories. Uh, Now, you know, for me, it was journaling and journaling writing is uh, uniquely well suited to this, but there's, I'll mention in a moment, many other options. Uh, The reason why journaling and writing is uniquely suited is because uh, you are, um, it's very um, personal. You can write in a more raw way when you're writing, knowing nobody else will see this. Because in the end, I wrote a book and put it all out for the world. Put it all in there. <laughs> so that wasn't what I was thinking when I was writing. <laughs> so uh, it never, still doesn't make me comfortable. But you know, uh, you you know when you are writing that uh, you're writing only for yourself. And think about it. Uh, you can go to a counselor or therapist. You can speak to a dear friend. You can speak to an important uh, clergyman uh, in your um, church or synagogue or mosque. You can you can do all those things, but in every one of those cases, you are sharing something deeply personal with others. And you know what? We all censor ourselves. 
Yeah. It's only natural and we're not, you know, who, who would lay it all out there for somebody to hear? We are all censor ourselves. But when you write, you can write just for yourself. Yeah. You can, it's very difficult to be honest with yourself, but you yeah. can try your best to be honest with yourself. Then you can get it on paper as imperfect as it is. And again, another unique part of writing is that you can go back a week later, a day later, a year later, and read what you wrote and annotate it and continue to improve it. You know, I find, and most people find you go back and read your own words and go, you know, I was, you know, that's only part of the story because it teases out more. Yeah. yeah. And then you can annotate and add more. So, that's why I think writing is really superb, but uh, there are many, many others. You know, there are so many creative outlook, outlets, and I think we can think about those creative outlets that people have, whether it's music or um, art, uh, dance. All of these outlets are ways that people are expressing themselves. And, could find, and it's a way, it's kind of a portal into mm -hmm. your deepest thoughts. Uh, so um, all of that. And of course, uh, faith-based um, uh, practices, meditation and other contemplative practices. Uh, it goes on and on. Another important source that we shouldn't overlook is um, getting out in um, the natural environment. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we tend to understate that, but we can all, I think, um, relate to time, how often you find yourself if you take a simple walk or, you know, um, you're, you're seeing some beautiful mountains, you're sitting by a lake, you're at the beach and how it, how transforming it is to your thoughts. Yeah. And when you're going through a terrible time after emotional trauma, that's a ripe, moment for you to not only feel like you can exhale but that you can relax enough to connect with thoughts that otherwise would be inaccessible the hardest part really is looking in the mirror and understanding ourselves enough to to know how to proceed you know i'd be the first one to tell you that when i was going through a terrible time i was not resourceful again getting back to executive function now I was not resourceful. Yeah. It, you know, it was like years later when I wrote the book and people were then contacting me from different organizations and podcasts and web, web websites and so forth. And I went, oh my God, there's like an endless array of resources. And I felt totally isolated. Yeah. And, you know, here I am a, a researcher. <laughs> have no difficulty looking things up, right. you know, but at the time at the it time. was not accessible to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that's true of others because everyone has told me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I heard, I heard, I listened to a podcast that you were on um, with a woman who has a podcast about grief and I, my working memory is my biggest executive function challenge. So I can't remember the name of it. Um, but anyway, on that, you were talking about how, um, how the brain can actually make it so that you don't see objects that are maybe related to the, to the 
person that you lost or the trauma that you went through. And I thought that was so fascinating and how that real, that right there for me really shows you that it is your brain, your, your brain. Oh, dear life. Maybe. Sorry. It just came to me. The name of the podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, I think, you know, uh, we should, um, review some of the uh, specific cognitive responses uh, or mm. effects on cognition. And uh, one of them is what you're talking about. You know, the um, you can picture the, we were talking before about how the brain is perceiving this is a threat to our survival. So there are a vast number of protective reflexes and responses that are being activated uh, and we talk, I talked already about many of the physical ones, but from a psychological or emotional standpoint, the brain is in an emotional protective crouch all the time, hmm. which is going to serve to shield us from disturbing um, triggers, disturbing things in our environment. Uh, and we have a whole host of psychological defense mechanisms that we all learned long ago, like dissociation, repression, denial, and so forth, that are kicked into high gear. It's, it's a subconscious reflex, so we're not, we're not deciding we're going to behave that way. We don't know that those reflexes are in, um, have been kicked off. And um, this can, as you say, result in literal holes in your perspective or your your vision. And, and the one that you described had occurred in my life, which was that um, uh, something as obviously concrete as um, my husband's uh, cell phone, his iPhone, uh, was sitting on uh, our desk. And I, I mean, not just months, it could have been years a long time went by uh, where I just didn't even know wow. I never saw it or I didn't there was a proper word I didn't allow myself to see it yeah, uh, right. you know but uh, someone actually uh, in the house saw it and pointed it out wow. and I had like it was shocking to me it was shocking I, I thought, my gosh, it's been sitting here all along. Wow. Uh, and I um, chose to ignore it such that it was a literal hole in my visual field. Yeah. That was so it shows you how, how incredibly strong and powerful these things are. You know, somebody who originally described um, uh, dissociation uh, dissociate, describe dissociation as fundamental to emotional trauma. And so dissociation is um, a really important part of this. And my book goes into this in some depth, uh, resulting in that when you are confronting disturbing uh, stressors in your environment, that your mind has this incredible protective response of just kind of turning off or shielding you from recognizing what you saw, just getting, you know, it might put you in a place for a few seconds or moments where you are, you're basically detached from your environment. Uh, or it might be more mild than that. There can be these interruptions of awareness. It fragments your memory because you're having periods of the day where this is 
uh, occurring, it's causing flashbacks. You can become increasingly emotionally numb because you're not being open to everything that's really in your environment all the time. So it's a very big part of why many of us feel like something has changed fundamentally after loss. Yeah. And and it's interesting that how you said it, it really just comes back to survival and protecting ourselves. Right. I mean, it's a, uh, it, it's actually, we have to think about it as a very effective strategy yeah. that the brain is employing. Uh, in other words, if, um, when, when we have, uh, if, if, if we have, you know, horribly a terrible tragedy or catastrophe occur, uh, we remain able to function and survive. Yeah. It would be possible that we were wired in such a way that we were not able to survive, that you, know, we, that you could not function, you could not make a meal, you could not right. dress yourself, you could not, you'd be in such a way. But instead, no, the truth is, and I really want to get to this, which is that, um, we're talking about executive function and cognition after trauma. And number one, you can remain extremely high functioning in the face of cognitive change. We are not talking about somebody developing a dementia and being unable to perform their daily activities. Speaking for myself, even in the worst of this, I was seeing patients writing papers, writing grants, doing everything. Yeah. Uh, so it just shows you how these things can be quite segregated. Mm -hmm. Another important point is that the cognitive changes are not across all domains and not across all parts of executive function that you know as well as I that executive function has many different um, components. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, one that I'd like to really point to that I think is not discussed enough, and I'm really interested in your thoughts on this, Hannah, is I believe that something that's overlooked a lot is cognitive flexibility. Mm. <laughs> I am right there with you. <laughs> so, you know, I think that during, uh, after trauma, trauma, after emotional trauma, cognitive flexibility takes a big hit for a yeah, long time i imagine yeah. and i just wonder you know um how do you come across that in your own work i mean i i think i really believe that cognitive flexibility is that and metacognition you know just understanding how we think and why we think and why we do what we do and don't do what we don't do i think those two together are for me what I see in my clients and in myself um, and in others are the most, the two most important because without that cognitive flexibility, especially I imagine with when you, when your life experience is such a great shift and such a great change. And like you said before, life is not going to go back to how it was before mm -hmm. that cognitive flexibility is probably going to be the answer to finding new ways of doing your life now and of finding happiness and success. I, I mean, I can't think of another executive function that is going to be more helpful than that. 
and it, and that really, it really hits the heart of you know being able mm -hmm. to be successful because you know yeah. it runs from the sublime to the ridiculous you know if if somebody does um for example reach out for uh or tries i was talking before about all the kinds of um methods that one strategies one could try if someone does begin on say okay i'm going to do this i'm going to i'm going to find a counselor i'm going to go to a support group um and and that doesn't have the proper chemistry or it just doesn't feel like it's being helpful to you for some reason you know if you don't have cognitive flexibility and resourcefulness you know that's pretty much a dead end for somebody yeah. rather than saying oh well you know there's 10 other ways to do this yeah uh, the um so i mean that's the sublime the ridiculous part of it can be that uh you can uh literally find yourself doing things in incredibly robotic ways when you are in a um going through uh a, a period of terrible emotional trauma where things are being done the way they were always done very automatically. And uh, you get kind of fixed in the spot. And then when hopefully you do uh, become more uh, healed and have more insight and cognitive flexibility, you know, like it's like one day you think, for goodness sake, you know, I'm doing these three steps and there's a one way to do this in one step. Why didn't I see that all the time? You know, uh, and, and uh, you know, I mean, for those who have um, experienced the loss of a loved one, I mean, there are some of these things that are so common. Uh, a simple example I've spoken to many people is um, if you, if it's somebody that, you know, a partner, that you find yourself going to the supermarket and buying all the same foods, even though that person is no longer home, you are in thinking, I want to buy this in honor of the memory of the lost loved one. You just automatically are buying it and you're stocking your pantry and you with things that you don't ordinarily use right it takes actually a fair amount of time till you wake up to the fact that you're doing that yeah uh, another one i talked about on a um bbc broadcast is that uh, people uh oftentimes describe preparing foods that their loved ones preferred not what they prefer what they preferred right right again it's not something that you plan out you're just automatically doing it yeah. and it takes and sometimes you're then in a robotic you're doing it and you're doing it and you're doing it and you don't have the cognitive flexibility to go this is what's happening and yeah, right. maybe i don't need you know five boxes of that you right. know yeah um, and it just, it really shows you that we are our habits. <laughs> we are the, the, like you said, you know, like that, that our brains have been wired that way. So we think that way. Yeah. Mm. You know, one other thing I'll, uh, I'll point to two other examples, um, in the cognitive sphere or two other, uh, issues. Um, one is, um, the inattention, uh, and we talked about the dissociation and how it results in this loss of awareness and so forth. And, you know, people who have suffered serious emotional trauma are, have been found to be quite vulnerable to accidents. Oh. And uh, this is a very, it's a significant problem. You know, uh, more falling, more car accidents, just accidents. 
that's and uh, you know, I read about that, but you know, I, I will just say again from pointing to my personal experience, uh, you know, in the uh, year following my husband's death, uh, I fell and broke my ankle. And I was in three car accidents, fortunately, fender benders. Um, and then since then, none of that. And it's, wow. this is almost the 10th year uh, anniversary of his death. I mean, it shows you that there is some cognitive change that you are not as alert to your environment. Yeah. Yeah, well, it makes sense. And I, I just did an episode on ADHD. And in my research, I, I found that people with ADHD who struggle with attention um, are also more prone to accidents, car mm -hmm. accidents and injuries. So. Right. right. And that also also totally makes sense. Yeah. And like yeah. the final point I don't want to overlook is um, the impact of our biorhythms. Uh, and, you know, um, many of us know that we are either um you know morning larks or night owls uh and that's just a very fixed part of our genetics that's not something you can change uh and so when you are you know you don't you have minimal or no reserve after emotional trauma so therefore from the standpoint of cognition think about if you are are you a morning lark or a night owl well i am a night owl i am fighting fighting that right now i'm trying really hard to become a morning lark it's really <laughs> difficult well, it's, you can't reverse it entirely no, you can try I to can't. do a little better but i'm trying to fake it till i make it but it's not happening <laughs> <laughs> so you know if you have are in a bad way with minimal to no cognitive reserve and you're you, you should just be aware, well, you know, if you are, that, that morning for you, Hannah, is not going to be the optimum time for you to try to do a, a serious cognitive task. Right, right. Because you have two, two things that are going on. And so <laughs> why, why even fight it? <laughs> yeah. And that's so much of what, what um, I do in my coaching is, is help, helping people figure out when is the best time of day for you to do different things. Yes. And, you know, when are, when are you going to be most successful? When is, uh, you know, a, not a great time to try something new or even to try something challenging? But yeah, just becoming aware, learning that, learning about ourselves and and knowing that that's right i mean you know i, I think uh it has a lot to do with uh something important that my husband taught me which is about being forgiving to yourself and Absolutely. you know i think that uh all of us and, and maybe women even more than men you know are you know filled with angst and second thoughts and remorse incrimination yeah. and you know like especially for people who are going through terrible times after uh traumatic losses it's very important to you know go gentle with yourself and think you know um i i'm doing my best and i'm i'm going to keep on working on this and sometimes i'm going to have uh, i'm going to regress uh, sometimes I'm going to really handle something poorly, I'm going to make a poor decision, uh, and that we should go, well, 
I'm going to be forgiving to myself because I'm going through a hard time and I'm going to learn from this and try again. Uh, I think that that's a very important part of it. And, and on the small side of it, in terms of what you were just saying, the day-to-day side of it, you know, you might sit down and think, okay, I've set aside this time to do what I called before the subconscious conscious integration, the grief work, the inner work. Uh, and you might sit down and it might be very unsuccessful. You just simply can't find, you can't find your rhythm like you had on another day. Well, I mean, it's good to acknowledge that and just go, well, you know, for some reason, yeah. for some reason, this is not the right time for me. Yeah. I'm going to do something else and tomorrow's another day. Yeah, uh, we always talk about how um, you can't listen to those shoulds. You have to you know, be gentle with yourself and, and do what's right in the moment. Is there anything else that you can think of? Did you want to go back to your three steps? Was there anything that you wanted to expand on there? You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, one thing that I would uh, say that can be quite um, confusing uh, is when we talk about this idea of subconscious conscious integration, the work to integrate um, and reconnect the emotional response to the cognitive uh, functions. Uh, And then we refer to that second step of immersion and distraction. I think one of the things that can be confusing and is to me about exactly how to talk about it is that the balance between the kinds of things that calm us down and will be a source of distraction Uh, and the kinds of things that will calm us down and enable us to do the hard work of of reconnection, of subconscious, conscious integration. And and that, I think, uh, can be a a source of confusion. Uh, And and we sort of all have to find our our own balance there Uh, and maybe identify times that are ripe to... um, even even if it's for a short moment, uh, you know, say, for example, in the ways we were talking before that you might be out uh, in a natural environment and you feel a sense of relief uh, and you feel like you can think more clearly. And in that moment, a memory might drift back to you uh, that is maybe a sad, a sad memory. It's a sad memory. But you see, it just became accessible to you because mm. you had relaxed enough for that purpose. Yeah. And now, you know, one doesn't have to uh, feel compelled to do some work around that because you've already accomplished something yeah. by doing that. Mm-hmm. Or feeling, feeling sad about it isn't necessarily, <laughs> you have to feel like that's a regression. Uh, it's instead as you go through that and you, in the way we talked about self-efficacy, um, developing confidence in yourself, that you go through, you, you have that moment and you um, might reflect and feel sorrow. And then you go back to maybe what you were doing and you have just had an experience where you succeeded 
in the face of you didn't have you know a break an emotional breakdown you didn't weren't triggered the fight or flight mechanism wasn't mm. triggered to its nth degree yeah. you instead had a moment of sorrow and you went through it which mm. is different than what would have happened before mm-hmm. that's that's a success yeah and that that makes me think um back to when you were talking about journaling and how um how when you when you like say you wrote that down that you find that you this used to happen before and now this now this happens you, you can look and see that that evidence that evidence of of growth and progress and how that must be really empowering and and give you and bolster that self-efficacy that is so helpful in getting through Yes, and you know that you're able to um, acknowledge it's a it's a healthy mind to be able to acknowledge that that was a, a beautiful important part of me. It's not here anymore, mm-hmm. but you're honoring it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you'd give anything to go back and have that person back or undo that traumatic event, um, but. Uh, this really uh, refers to the important field of post-traumatic growth and how you achieve that. There, you, with time, you know, we have, well, another favorite phrase is time heals all wounds. And uh, in, for most people, not everybody, but for most people, uh, time will result in a lot of healing uh, after traumatic loss, but if one doesn't go through the steps that we're talking about here to reverse those bad neuroplastic changes in the brain, access suppressed memories and emotions, excuse me, access suppressed memories and emotions. If you don't go through those steps, you are blocked from ever growing as fully for your, to your potential as you could. Right. You will improve, but you will be blocked from the the full potential that you have because so, of the way that your brain is responding. Because you you have never you you continue to have suppressed memories and emotions that your brain has to continually protect you from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, another another way we, we can refer to this in terms of cognition, and it's important, is that when when the um, when the brain is functioning in that protective mode, the fight or flight, the acute responses, the chronic effects, everything we talked about, it uses up a lot of brain power, a lot of real estate yeah. in the brain is being used up to to shield me from seeing that iPhone. That's not just happening on its own. Some portion of the brain is keeps on going, you know, alert to not not pay attention to that thing, you know? (laughs) There's a part of the brain that keeps on doing that over and over. And how can that ever be compatible with full healing and optimum cognitive function yeah it's not possible no Mm -mm. and it's and it's a a lifelong process 
it's a lifelong process. It's not as if anybody is ever going to be at the end of that process. We keep on identifying things that are um, disturbing, and then you have to work through it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which gives you that what what which gives you the ability to move out of what you said before that the feeling of hopelessness and there's concrete things that you can do. Absolutely. To, uh, yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your talking with me and it's fascinating and difficult to talk about at the same time. So, yeah. well, you know, it's like anything else. So like we just said, it was very difficult to talk about it in the beginning. And now I've talked about it a lot. It's yeah. no longer difficult. And I really enjoyed my time with you. Well, thank you. And that is our show for today. Be sure to check out those show notes for links to learn more about today's topic. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen. I hope you found some peace and maybe some answers in my conversation with Dr. Lisa Shulman. Help us help others to learn more about executive function skills. Please share our podcast with your colleagues and your family and your friends. You can subscribe to Focus Forward on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a boost by giving us a five-star rating. Sign up for our newsletter at beyondbooksmart.com slash podcast. We'll let you know when new episodes drop and we'll share information related to the topic. Thanks for listening.